Well, God in his mercy has seen fit to let us have another session. Thank you, Lord. Um, well, it's been a good day. Uh, I have enjoyed my conversations with you. Uh, good questions. Uh, it's been great to hear more about what's happening here at uh, Heritage and uh, the Canadian context. Um, so now we wrap it all up, right? All the answers. Maybe one or two at most. Uh, so what does this mean? Christian witness among religious others. And uh, let me just say at the outset again, um, I've lived much of my life in Japan, spent time in Asia, otherwise North, uh, the United States. So that has shaped how I approach these issues. And especially the last two decades in the U.S., um, seeing the increasing polarization, um, a lot of currents at work, some positive, many not so positive. Uh, that's shaped my thoughts and my perspective in, in large measure. I think we in the United States have a lot of work to do as we think about what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus in this particular social, political, religious context at this time. And uh, we don't have a lot of good models, and I think sometimes we're, we're groping. So uh, though that's the context out of which my comments come. I hope some of it applies to Canada. You probably have somewhat different issues in some ways, but um, uh, let's see what we can do. Well, how should we live and minister in cultures that are increasingly religiously diverse? Diverse, and we could also add unfriendly to traditional uh, Christian orthodoxy. How should we respond to those who find the Christian message of Jesus as the one Lord and Savior for all humankind just unbelievable, implausible? I uh, had a nice chat during the break. Um, I don't remember the name. I'm getting old. I forget these things, right? But uh, talking about the indifference in society today. Uh, Steve Bruce, a sociologist out of the U.K., uh, defends more of the classical secularization theory, but uh, he made a very insightful comment in one of his books. Uh, he says, the end point of secularization is not atheism. It's indifference. People just yawn, shrug, you know, okay, uh, it works for you, good, don't bother me. Um, that's according to Bruce, the end point of secularization. In my comments in this session, I'm going to be drawing upon some passages out of Scripture and then looking at two uh, documents that I have found very, very helpful. One's the Cape Town Commitment, and the other is the Williamsburg Charter. The Cape Town Commitment is a theologically and missiologically rich statement produced by the third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization held in Cape Town, South Africa in October of 2010. Perhaps some of you were there. The uh, commitment is written with the challenges of religious diversity and religious pluralism very much in mind. 
and it provides some very helpful guidelines for Christian witness in religiously diverse contexts. Uh, Chris Wright was one of the principal authors of the commitment. It's a uh, theologically rich document, and um, it, it's a nice text to use as a study in uh, church. The Williamsburg Charter was drafted largely by Oz Guinness back in 1986, and it is one of the more significant documents addressing the place of religious commitment in the public sector. Uh, the issue at the time was uh, Christian commitments in public education in the public school system back in 1986. Guinness, an evangelical Christian associated with the Brookings Institution, produced the Williamsburg Charter as a celebration of the First Amendment Religious Liberty Clauses of the U.S. Constitution. And it was actually signed by an amazingly wide variety of American educators and politicians. Well, first off, we need to note that if we are to be faithful to our Lord, then Christians must be involved in making disciples of all peoples. Uh, that's basic, axiomatic. Evangelicals are deeply committed to mission. So it's appropriate at this stage to briefly consider the so-called Great Commission, Matthew 28. Now, I grew up in a missionary home. Um, I have heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons on Matthew 28. I've preached a few. Uh, the 1980s, the 1990s, as we worked our way towards the end of the millennium, uh, there was a kind of frenzy in missiological circles, fulfilled a great commission before the end of the millennium. Uh, this was especially in the 80s. As you got into the 90s, and, uh, you know, the 2000 got closer and closer, uh, it became obvious, okay, no matter how we redefine this, it's not going to happen. But... Um, the underlying idea, fulfill the Great Commission. What do you mean? What do you mean? How do you fulfill the Great Commission? Well, you know, you share the gospel to everybody. Okay, how do you do that? What's the gospel? And the uh, operative assumption seemed to be um, you get the minimum amount of information that is necessary for someone to be saved and then somehow transmit that information. And once you have done that, sufficiently, we can say we have fulfilled the Great Commission. And let's do that by the year 2000. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious here, and, um, but only a little bit. If you lived through the missiology of the 1980s and 90s and participated in some of these um, global events and whatnot, perhaps you, you sense a little bit of what I'm talking about. My point here is we were operating with a very truncated understanding of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 28. But even with that truncated understanding, it became obvious, 1998, 99. Even with that very truncated understanding, it was obvious we're not going to fulfill it. Listen to the words again, Matthew 28, 19, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Now, if you study the text, you know the primary emphasis here is on making disciples. Make disciples. You do this by going. You do this by teaching them to obey everything. But the imperative, the focal point here is make disciples. So two very quick observations. Christ followers are to make disciples of all peoples without exception. And this includes sincere and morally exemplary adherence of other religions. Uh, remember the religious diversity in the first century. You don't hear Jesus saying, make disciples of the non-religious, of the explicit atheists. All peoples, all peoples. So, if we are to be faithful to our Lord today, we cannot abandon witness among devoted followers of other religious paths. This is very unpopular today. Uh, if you are on a plane and you are tired and you don't want to have a conversation with the person next to you, they ask you what you do, you tell them you're a missionary. End of discussion. Or they will launch into you with a tirade about how insensitive, etc., you are. Um, this is not popular today. Uh, going to people already committed to another religious worldview, another religious set of practices, trying to persuade them to abandon their ways and to adopt what you think are God's ways. If, if it were not true, it would be so audacious, I mean, we shouldn't even think about doing something like that. If it is true, the gospel is true, then we do it in obedience. But then the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we do it? Secondly, out of these verses, the command is to make disciples. What's a disciple? The term disciple and its cognates occurs 73 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Making disciples involves much more than just passing on a certain minimal information content about how one can be saved. It doesn't include less than that, but it includes much more than that. So, in making disciples, we are to shape others through the power of the Holy Spirit so that they live in conformity with all that Jesus has instructed his followers. So Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the great discourses such as the Sermon on the Mount and the parables, provide a good picture of what a disciple is supposed to look like. I think this is what Jesus is doing through the discourses. Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, in the end of chapter 4, he makes it clear. He's talking to his disciples here. You want to be my followers? This is what you look like. Disciple of Jesus is someone who lives his or her life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, who follows what Jesus has commanded. So from the Sermon on the Mount, for example, we learn that a disciple of Jesus is a man or woman who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and justice, who's merciful, who's pure in heart, who's a peacemaker. And in one of Jesus' more radical statements, uh, chapter 5, 43 to 48, Jesus says that his disciples are even to love their enemies. Who were the enemies at the time? Well, certainly the Romans. Certainly the Romans. 
Uh, well, who are the enemies today? You can fill in the blank with uh, whatever is appropriate here. Uh, Jesus' statement here is radical. You love your enemies. That's what a disciple is. Well, the world in which we are to make disciples is one that is marked by tension, strife, suspicion. We've already discussed some of that. It's a post-colonialist world in which people are very much aware of the injustices of four centuries of Western imperialism and a world that believes, whether rightly or wrongly, that Christianity bears much of the blame for this injustice. Again, perceptions and reality. It's a world in which violence, racism, and abuse of women and children all too often find expression within the church itself. In society at large, we find ethnic, nationalistic, and religious tensions erupting into violence, causing many today to despair of the possibility of genuinely diverse uh, communities living together peacefully. Um, <clears throat> when you hear people talking about this, uh, it's not just hypothetical terms. Uh, many non-Christian social observers are deeply disturbed by what they're seeing. And uh, the question is simply, can we live together without killing each other? It's a pretty basic question. Well, can we as disciples of Jesus be faithful to his command to make disciples, but do it in such a way that we don't perpetuate the strife, the violence, the tensions, the misunderstandings, and to the contrary, we actually offer a better alternative. Can we do that? Well, I think not only we can, but we must. And I think the success of the church in the coming decades will be a function of our ability to do that. A disciple. The Gospel of Matthew tells us what a disciple is like. Let's turn to Matthew 22. Here we have a religious leader questioning Jesus about the greatest commandment. You know the text very well. Got all these commandments. Jesus, what's the most important? <clears throat> Jesus' answer has, I think, profound implications for how Christians are to carry out the Great Commission. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Don't miss that last sentence. Loving God, loving neighbor, sums up what we call the Old Testament. So Jesus' disciples are to love God with their entire beings and to love their neighbors as they love themselves. And our neighbors in North America, I don't have to tell you, include adherents of many religions as well as those who are non-religious. Another significant text out of Matthew. What is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? Matthew 7, verse 12. We call it the golden rule. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you for, here it is again. This sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, very significant, Jesus ends with that statement there. You want to know what the Torah is all about? What we call the Old Testament? This is it. 
Treat other people the way you would want to be treated by them. Well, this concise summary of a basic ethical principle, I think, has enormous implications for how Christians should live among followers of other religions. How, for example, should Christians bear witness to Jesus in a society marked by diversity and tension? Well, what if the tables were turned and we were the objects of the evangelistic efforts of Buddhists or Muslims or Mormons? How would we like to be treated by someone from another religion eager to convert us to their faith? In our witness, we should treat them the way we in turn would like to be treated by them. Now, Jesus, what about Paul? We find much the same in Paul's writings as well. Two texts, one out of Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Isn't that interesting? The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Galatians 5, verse 14, Paul says, The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, interesting. That's a pretty strong message on what disciples ought to look like. Love God, love others. So the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, the Golden Rule are all at the heart of Jesus' teaching and help to define what a disciple of Jesus is to be like. In carrying out the Great Commission then, in making disciples of others, Christians are to follow the Great Commandment and the Golden Rule. So we have at least three obligations coming out of these texts. One, make disciples of adherents or followers of other religions. I don't see how you can escape that obligation. If you're a disciple of Jesus, make disciples of all people. Second, you love them. You love them. Third, you treat them the way that we in turn would want to be treated by them. On one level, that's so simple. On another level, that's very hard, apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Well, we've already noted that Christian witness occurs among many who are deeply skeptical about the gospel. In these contexts, it's not enough just to proclaim the gospel. Again, we need to proclaim the gospel. But that by itself sometimes is not enough. We also need to respond to legitimate questions that arise. And I began this morning with the question, given the many religious and non-religious alternatives available today, why should one accept the Christian message as true? I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. In fact, I'm surprised when it doesn't arise. Uh, thinking people today, that's a perfectly normal, reasonable question. You have all these proclaimers of religious truth out there. Why should I believe you? In other words, we need a theologically sound and culturally appropriate apologetics for the truth of the gospel. 
this is acknowledged in the Cape Town Commitment, which calls the church to, quote, a greater commitment to the hard work of robust apologetics. We need to identify, equip, and pray for those who can engage at the highest intellectual and public level in arguing for and defending biblical truth in the public, in the public arena, end quote. Now, apologetics has always been somewhat controversial in the church, and there are lots of examples of how not to do it. Um, I've taught apologetics at uh, Trinity for 25 years. Um, I've heard all the horror stories, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, recently, we did a curriculum review. We changed the course somewhat, and we took the word apologetics out of the title. Uh, not because we don't believe in apologetics anymore, but times change. And if you think, I don't know how it is in Canada here, but the word apologist in uh, the United States now has a very negative connotation. Uh, in the broader society, the only time you hear it is in a negative sense. Well, so-and-so is an apologist for the oil industry, or so-and-so is an apologist for the uh, tobacco industry. And what that means is you cannot trust them. You cannot trust them. They're biased. They're not going to deal objectively with the facts. Uh, that's not what we're trying to promote uh, in the course in apologetics. So we gave it a new title. Uh, but the activity itself is something that is vitally important. Coming out of 1 Peter uh, 3, of course, and um, other places, being able to give a reason for the hope that we have. At its heart, apologetics is simply responding in theologically, intellectually, and culturally appropriate ways to the criticisms of the truth claims of the Christian gospel. Um, theologically appropriate, intellectually appropriate, and culturally appropriate. The Cape Town Commitment rightly sees skepticism about religious truth as a central problem for witness today. Skepticism comes in many forms, but it's pervasive, I think, today. Uh, I'm convinced we have lots of skeptics in our churches. Um, if they're honest, if they feel uh, the safety of a conversation where they can really unload, uh, they have lots of questions. Uh, to be a skeptic doesn't mean that you abandon religion entirely. Uh, people are religious for lots of reasons. But uh, when it comes to the hard truth claims of the Christian gospel, do you really believe that? I think there's a lot of hemming and hawing going on in our churches. Well, responding to skepticism requires men and women who are committed to Christ and who are intellectually gifted and highly trained in the appropriate disciplines. Developing these qualities does not come easily. We need to encourage and support those who feel called to this uh, somewhat specialized kind of ministry. And you have all kinds of levels, from highly sophisticated uh, to dealing with these questions in um, upper elementary, junior high school, and high school age context. By the time they're in university, it's too late. Not too late, but you're playing catch-up. Uh, these questions emerge very, very early. Although pastors cannot be expected to be experts in apologetics, I do think they have a responsibility to be able to offer appropriate answers to both Christians and non-Christians who ask questions about why we should accept the Christian message as true. Sincere questions need to be taken seriously and responded to appropriately. Now, depending upon the context, a variety of issues will need to be addressed. 
I think the two most significant are, does God exist and who is Jesus of Nazareth? There are lots of other issues that will come up. Uh, those to me are the two core issues. If there are good reasons for believing that an internal creator God exists, then there are good reasons for rejecting worldviews such as classical Buddhism and Jainism, which include as essential components of their worldviews, denial of God's existence. If there are good reasons for accepting the New Testament picture of Jesus as fully God and fully man, the one Lord and Savior for all humankind, then there are good reasons for rejecting worldviews which deny this. Now, some people will feel called to engage in what we sometimes call interreligious apologetics. That is challenging in appropriate ways followers of other religions to consider for themselves the reasons for accepting the truth of the gospel. Uh, this is a highly specialized activity. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we all should be ready and prepared to share the gospel with anybody, whatever religion. That's not the issue. But when it comes to dealing with questions of truth on the worldview level, this can be a much more specialized activity. It's a very important one. Those engaging in interreligious apologetics must take the necessary time to study other religious traditions carefully, making sure that they understand the religious worldviews accurately and that they are not simply dealing with simplistic caricatures. Responsible interreligious apologetics will be fair in its treatment of other religious worldviews, acknowledging what is true and good in them, even as it points out what is false or otherwise problematic. Uh, the golden rule again. You have all had the experience of somebody painting a very simplistic, misleading caricature of the gospel and then dismissing it, right? Uh, and how do you respond when, when that happens? I get angry. I get angry. I say, that's not the gospel. You are not dealing with the gospel there. Uh, we need to extend the same courtesy to followers of other religions, make sure it's actually uh, what they believe and their uh, worldview. The objective here is not to score easy points at the expense of the other, but rather to understand the other's position adequately so that one can provide responsible reasons for considering what the scriptures say about the gospel of Christ. Now, in contexts where you have religious diversity and ethnic diversity, uh, you need to be especially sensitive to potential misunderstandings and the importance of being culturally appropriate. Um, throughout, of course, one must be in prayerful reliance upon the uh, guiding and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I look upon this as more of an art than a science. And uh, you develop skills in this as you participate and engage in it. Uh, sensitivity, respect uh, go a long way, along with presenting uh, credible uh, answers. Well, in responding to critics of the faith, we need to go beyond simply dealing with beliefs. What one finds plausible or implausible often is a function of attitudes and values. So, if someone has an unfavorable attitude towards Christians or towards evangelicals or the church as an institution, then the claims of the gospel will likely be implausible for that person. Conversely, if one has a positive attitude towards Christians or Jesus, then one might find the message of the gospel more plausible. 
So what are some attitudes or values regarding religious matters that are especially significant in the broader culture today? I think it's fair to say that people today generally value attitudes of respect, tolerance, and acceptance of religious diversity, attitudes of humility and willingness to learn from diverse perspectives, and a commitment to protecting the rights of religious minorities in our society. Um, although the religious rights usually are non-Christian religious rights and not uh, Christian religious rights as such. Well, these are highly prized because they are regarded as necessary qualities for living harmoniously in a society that includes very different uh, perspectives and groups. To the extent that evangelicals embody these attitudes and values, this will enhance the plausibility of what we say about the gospel. And just speaking about American evangelicals now, uh, I don't think we have a very good track record here. Uh, we tend to be abrasive, very much in your face, very much claiming that we're dealing with the truth question, but it often tends to be who can score the most points uh, quickest. And uh, sensitivity and respect, uh, I don't think, would be hallmarks of our approach. Uh, quite frankly, evangelicals have a bad name in the broader American uh, society and community. Uh, whether correctly or not, and my suspicion is there's enough correctness here to make us squirm, but whether correctly or not, evangelicals are often perceived as being the problem, not the answer, when it comes to how, how can we live together. Well, we have to work on that. Um, can we properly embrace, respect, and the desire to uh, live together in, in a properly harmonious environment and also be aggressive and eager to share the gospel with religious others with the end of their conversion to Christ in view? That's the issue. And my short answer is yes, of course we can. Uh, we're not doing very well at it yet in America, but of course we can. And we have to. Uh, the Cape Town commitment reminds us that the plausibility of interreligious witness is directly related to the moral integrity and Christ-likeness of Christians. Uh, let me quote from the Cape Town commitment now. The evangelization of the world and the recognition of Christ's deity are helped or hindered by whether or not we obey him in practice. Uh, there's a refreshingly humble spirit throughout the Cape Town commitment, and uh, it candidly acknowledges our failures uh, from the past in Christian witness. So, for example, the commitment calls upon Christians to, quote, reject any form of witness that is coercive, unethical, deceptive, or disrespectful, end quote. Uh, another quote. In the name of the God of love, we repent of our failure to seek friendships with people of Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and other religious backgrounds. In the spirit of Jesus, we will take initiatives to show love, goodwill, and hospitality to them. End quote. Well, not only have we failed to show love and hospitality to religious others, too often Christians themselves have been involved in oppression, oppression of and violence against followers of other religions. Another quotation from the commitment. We acknowledge with grief and shame the complicity of Christians in some of the most destructive contexts of ethnic violence and oppression and the lamentable silence of large parts of the, of the church when such conflicts take place. 
For the sake of the gospel, we lament and call for repentance where Christians have participated in ethnic violence, injustice, or oppression. We long for the day when the church will be the world's most visibly shining model of ethnic reconciliation and its most active advocate for conflict resolution, end quote. The commitment also denounces false depictions or caricatures of other faiths. Quoting again, In the name of the God of truth, we refuse to promote lies and caricatures about other faiths, and we denounce and resist the racist, prejudiced hatred and fear incited in popular media and political rhetoric. End quote. Christ's disciples, among other things, are to be men and women of truth and honesty. And I think back to the Decalogue, Exodus 20, the commandment not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Well, that has implications for us in a religiously diverse world as well. One thing that uh, can help us as Christians in our witness today is to recover a biblical understanding of the common humanity we share with followers of other religions. And again, I quote from the uh, Cape Town Commitment, quote, We respond to the high calling as disciples of Jesus Christ to see people of other faiths as neighbors in the biblical sense. They are human beings created in God's image whom God loved and for whose sins Christ died, end quote. So the fact that all people, including sincere adherents of other religions, are created in the image of God, I think has profound implications for how we understand and relate to religious others. Chris Wright, uh, Langham Trust, uh, uh, Old Testament scholar, uh, had a very interesting article back in the 1980s on uh, uh, the implications of the Old Testament for uh, other religions. Uh, and in it, he made this observation. And uh, I was in Japan at the time. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an obvious point. You would think, well, gee, you're a missionary. You ought to know that. Uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, the primary category through which we need to understand followers of other religions is not Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, whatever. It's fellow creature created in God's image who happens to be Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, whatever. Those are secondary identifiers. Uh, the basic identifier is a fellow human being created in God's image, a sinner just like I am in need of God's grace. Uh, again, when, when that really struck home to me, working on theology of religions and how do we relate to Japanese Buddhists, uh, it was revolutionary. Among other things, you began to notice all kinds of commonalities. Uh, if the primary category is Buddhist, uh, all of a sudden, you're focusing on the differences. Oh, look at all these differences. How are we going to bridge this gap? If the primary category is fellow creature, human being, divine image bearer, sinner, in need of God's grace, all of a sudden, you begin to find all kinds of linkages. Well, in the last few minutes here, uh, I'd like to explore a bit the need for Christians in religiously diverse societies to live as good citizens. Uh, and again, my views here have been shaped in part by my experiences in Japan where Christians are 1%. They have no power, no social political power at all. 
And it's a very different uh, set of issues uh, when you're part of the 1% and not part of the 90%. Um, and I'm thinking in these comments, I'm thinking in particular about the United States. I don't know the Canadian situation that well. Uh, you'll have to make adjustments here as appropriate. As Christians, though, we operate with two sets of obligations, both of which need to be taken seriously and navigated very carefully. There is a legitimate distinction between obligations we have as disciples of Jesus and obligations we have as members of a nation or society that is not explicitly Christian. To be sure, as disciples of Jesus, we are to acknowledge that there is no higher authority than Christ, for Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Our lives are to be committed to and fully shaped by Jesus and all that he stands for. Go back to the first century. You don't have democratic republics in the first century. You have highly authoritarian uh, regimes. Jesus' own contemporaries, both his own disciples and his critics, struggled with the implications of what Jesus was saying for their current political realities. Uh, and the political realities then, of course, was the very, very repressive, authoritarian, thoroughly pagan system of Rome. His disciples accepted Jesus as Lord of all. But if Jesus is Lord of lords, is he then a political revolutionary, undermining the authority of Rome? Can a disciple of Jesus really acknowledge as legitimate a political authority that is not explicitly Christian? So, on one occasion, Jesus was asked whether paying taxes to the Roman emperor Caesar is appropriate. You know the text. The question, of course, is intended to force Jesus into an impossible dichotomy. Uh, which has ultimate authority here, God or the Roman emperor? And Jesus responds by pointing to the portrait of Caesar on the coin used to pay taxes and saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, there are lots of places in Scripture where I wish you had three or four paragraphs of divinely inspired commentary. Uh, and this is what Jesus meant here. And there you have it. Uh, through the centuries, uh, theologians have um, disagreed over the implications of what Jesus' uh, response here actually means. At the very least, he's acknowledging there are distinct domains demanding our allegiance. We have obligations to God. We also have obligations to the prevailing political authority. Uh, you can look at other texts, Romans 13, 1 Peter, and so on, where uh, similar things are acknowledged. Contrary to the expectations of some of his followers, Jesus did not attempt to overthrow the reigning pagan political system. Nor did he try to institute a theocracy for his followers. He demands complete allegiance from his disciples, even as they remain responsible citizens of the broader society. The social and political systems of uh, many nations today uh, reflect varying degrees of commitment to freedom of religion, religious expression. Again, this is such a new concept in history. Um, the American experiment with the U.S. Constitution really marks the departure here. Our Constitution, the First Amendment, reads in part, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
So the U.S. government is not to establish a state religion, but neither is it to prohibit the free exercise of religion. And as the society has become increasingly diverse, we've had more and more cases in court trying to clarify what that means. The courts have, modern courts have re, uh, repeatedly reaffirmed that this is a guarantee of free exercise of religion, not only for Christians, but for followers of other faiths as well. Okay, this raises all kinds of questions for Christians, especially in a society like the U.S., where over 70% of the population claims to be Christian. Let me suggest two principles for Christians as we conduct ourselves in the public sector in diverse contexts. First, our conduct in the public square should be characterized by the moral qualities that Jesus expects from his followers and from the civic virtue that is expected of good citizens. So civic virtue, there's an important distinction between doing what we are legally permitted to do and doing what we ought to do as good citizens. Being a good citizen involves much more than simply not breaking any laws or defending our legitimate rights. A good citizen is someone who exemplifies moral qualities and conduct that advance the common good in ways that go beyond one's own immediate interests. Robert Audi is an American uh, Christian philosopher, Notre Dame, and uh, he's written on this subject extensively. He calls upon Christians to demonstrate civic virtue in our religiously diverse society. Civic virtue is that moral quality, that moral trait that underlines good citizenship. It's that <clears throat> it is that virtue that moves one conduct beyond merely what is in one's own interest to consideration of the common good or the public welfare. And quoting Audi now, there's a sense in which citizens in a liberal democracy ought to meet standards of, for instance, mutual concern and mutual respect, even if they have a right not to. Audi maintains that for the Christian, civic virtue includes acting in accordance with Jesus' command to love others and to treat others as Christians would wish to be treated by them. It's very interesting how he takes the golden rule and as a philosopher weaves that into his public philosophy. Now, a second implication. Christians must move beyond concern merely for protecting their own religious rights to a commitment to preserve religious liberties for all. And again, this is speaking to the American context uh, where Christians, evangelical Christians, do have considerable social and political power. <clears throat> it's easy to take for granted the rights of uh, freedom of religious belief and practice that we enjoy. We shouldn't take it for granted. We need to be vigilant in protecting that. I'm all for that. I'm not speaking against that for a moment. But both as disciples of Jesus and as good citizens, Christians have obligations that go beyond simply looking out for the rights of Christians. So in the American context, discussions by American evangelicals about religion in the public square tend to focus largely on protecting the rights of Christians against the agenda of the secularists. There's a place for that, and I support that when it's done properly. Um, little attention, though, has been given to the host of complex questions about how Christians are to live as good citizens promoting justice and fairness in a diverse society. I mentioned Larisha Hawkins, the professor at Wheaton, uh, the controversy that was prompted then. 
Muslims have been discriminated against in the greater Chicago area when it comes to receiving building permits for their mosques and, and in other ways, in employment, labor, and so on. And so she was trying in her way to show solidarity with them and saying they have rights just like we do as Christians. Now, whether she did it in the wisest way or not is a separate issue. Uh, but that was the background set of circumstances to which she was responding. Well, the issue here is, are very complex. They directly affect areas such as, in the United States, the military, hospital chaplaincy, instruction about public religion in public, about religion in public schools, issues of employment and housing policies, uh, building permits for centers of worship, appropriateness of religious symbols and dress in public settings, public observance of religious holidays, and on and on. My wife works in the public uh, high school in Vernon Hills, and uh, they struggle with these issues, and they're trying to do the best they can. Here, too, I think the 1986 Williamsburg Charter has some wisdom to offer us. And let me quote just a bit from the Williamsburg Charter. The Charter states, speaking of the U.S. Constitution now, the two religious liberty clauses address distinct concerns, but together they serve the same end, religious liberty or freedom of conscience for citizens of all faiths or none, end quote. The Charter explicitly connects protection of religious liberty for the dominant group with protecting the religious liberties of religious minorities. Quoting again, Religious liberty, freedom of conscience, is a precious, fundamental, inalienable right. A society is only as just and free as it is respectful of this right for its smallest minorities and least popular communities. Then it goes on to say, We affirm that a right for one is a right for another and a responsibility for all. A right for a Protestant is a right for an Orthodox, is a right for a Catholic, is a right for a Jew, is a right for a humanist, is a right for a Mormon, is a right for a Muslim, is a right for a Buddhist, and for the followers of any other faith within the wide bounds of the Republic. That rights are universal and responsibilities mutual is both the promise and the premise of democratic pluralism. The First Amendment in this sense is the epitome of public justice and serves as the golden rule for civic life. Rights are best guarded and responsibilities best exercised when each person and group guards for all others those rights they wish guarded for themselves." End quote. Now again, this is especially a point for the American Evangelical Church where it does have a fair measure of social and political power. To what extent are we, as American evangelicals, committed to preserving the rights of other religious groups to practice uh, as they see fit in our midst. And Os Guinness and the Williamsburg Charter ties that concern directly to our concern with protecting our rights. Well, as followers of Jesus, we have obligations both as Christ's disciples, we looked at some of those, make disciples of all peoples, and obligations as good citizens. And we've talked just a little bit about what is involved in that. As good citizens and disciples of Jesus, we're committed to moral integrity 
and the pursuit of civic virtue in our relations with others. So, here's the challenge then. We need to demonstrate through word and deed that we can be firmly committed to the truth of the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ, even as we are appropriately accepting of people of other religions. So we must show that we will defend their religious rights as fellow citizens. We will work for the common good, even as we urge them to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're not mutually incompatible. In fact, I would argue in the coming decades, we have to bring these together by God's grace. Uh, so can we do it? Not on our own, by God's grace, under the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I really do think even many secularists are looking for a new model. Uh, we, we all know things that don't work in diverse societies. Show us a model where we can be deeply committed to the truths of the gospel and at the same time treat other people appropriately. Uh, that will enhance the plausibility of the gospel. Do we have time for a question or two? Until the lights <laughs> intrude. Uh, any comments, not just about this, but about anything today? Yes, sir. more receptivity uh, to the gospel from Muslims who have become secularized, meaning abandoned or modified <coughs> traditions from more modern, or from Muslims who are more orthodox? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've talked with Muslims, but I don't have a lot of experience with Muslims. Most of my ministry experience outside of um, the greater Chicago area now has been in Asia. It, yeah, just what I see and observe. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of Muslims are coming to Christ uh, out of very traditional backgrounds. And um, you know, not as many as we'd like, but a lot are coming to Christ. So it's not as though it's an impenetrable uh, concrete wall that nothing is going to break. Um, that's a great question. Do you find more receptivity among traditional believers, whether it's Islam or let's say Hinduism or Buddhism, or among those who are more secularized? Um, I really don't know. I know traditional Buddhists are extremely resistant. Um, so it's not an accident that the church in Japan has, has been very uh, small, Thailand. Uh, Hinduism, again, it's a larger church in India, uh, but especially among the higher castes and uh, the more educated. Um, one place where you might see, uh, and, and I know this is the case, Singapore. Um, one of our doctoral students did a study of uh, Chinese in Singapore who had converted to Christianity. Uh, a lot of Chinese in Singapore, especially those in medicine, education, uh, better educated, there's a very high percentage of Christians among them. And uh, what that study found, and it supported a study done by a, a sociologist at Singapore, the National University there, uh, was that that population was dissatisfied with traditional Chinese folk religion. 
and more open to Christianity because Christianity was perceived as a modern, reasonable religion. Uh, so, you know, not what you would really expect. Uh, but these were well-educated uh, Chinese uh, moving into the sciences, and uh, they were very dissatisfied with traditional folk Chinese practices. That was perceived as being backwards and, and so on. And so Christianity was attractive for that group. Um, but as a, as a broad generalization, it'd be hard for me to speak to that. Uh, I, I just don't know. Secularists, uh, you know, if they're asking questions and you can debate the questions, then that's one thing. But again, Steve Bruce, uh, indifference. Um, a lot are just not even interested in the question. And so uh, part of that, I think, is a disillusionment with institutional religion. We've tried it. Look what it got us. I don't even want to go there anymore. So how, how do you break that indifference and actually raise the questions so that they're willing to say, well, that's, that's a good question. I wonder if Jesus really is who he is depicted as being. Time for one more. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very good. Boy. Um, Japan has a saying, truth flows through relationships. And so, I mean, in the Japanese context, uh, you develop relationships and you share truth. You talk about issues of truth within the context of a relationship. Um, just cold turkey, uh, no context debates over religious truth. Uh, that's not how it's done over there. My sense is that's more and more the case over here as well. Um, you need a relationship of trust. You need a relationship of trust, uh, I think, ideally. Now, if you don't have time, if you only have 20 minutes with somebody and you're not going to see them again, you want to press the right issues, obviously. But assuming you can develop a relationship with someone over some period of time, develop a relationship of trust where people feel comfortable raising questions and you can really talk seriously, okay? Well, what do you think happens when we die? That's a pretty scary question. That is a pretty scary question. Uh, everybody thinks about it. Most people don't even want to think, uh, talk about it. Everybody thinks about it. Uh, but you need a relationship of trust where you can, you can go there and you can go, I, I don't have any idea, but I'm afraid. Uh, you know, wow. Uh, how, how would we know? Um, press the issue of trust in context of religious diversity. And uh, one thing that I have found that I think helps to enhance plausibility, if you are willing to admit, you know what? I think there is some truth. I think there's some goodness in other religions. It's not all bad. That disarms people often. Their image is, if you're a conservative evangelical, you're going to condemn everything in other religions as demonic. There's nothing good in them. Uh, and if that's where you're coming from, I'm not interested. So one way to kind of short-circuit that, I, I think there are elements of truth and goodness and beauty. There's also an awful lot of evil and sin and uh, corruption in other religions too. But if you just say, hey, you know what? 
Um, I think there's some truth there. Uh, we've talked about the golden rule here. Do you know that twice in the Analects of Confucius, this is three to four centuries before the time of Christ, twice you have the explicit statement of the golden rule. Wow, where'd that come from? How'd that get there? Uh, I don't think that was divine revelation to Confucius. I think he was a, a very astute social theorist. The golden rule is a very basic moral principle. Treat other people the way you in turn would want to be treated by them. I don't find it at all surprising that Confucius came up with that formula and uh, it's there in the Analects. Uh, but, you know, you, you acknowledge that and say, yeah, I mean, Confucius obviously had some insight into the importance of how we ought to treat other people. He says essentially the same thing Jesus did. Now, Jesus says a whole lot more than what Confucius said. Uh, but those kinds of things can sometimes disarm stereotypes and what people are expecting us to say. Uh, you have to earn the right to um, be heard. And so if we want to raise the truth question, we need to have a relationship of trust. Uh, we need to take them seriously. Uh, and then lastly, we need to know what we're talking about. Um, are we out of time? Thank you. You guys have been terrific, and uh, it's been a very, very enjoyable day. Thank you. Well, thank you for being a part of our special day today. I want to let you know that we're having another one in the fall, our uh, preaching lectures, and they are going to be with Winfred, Dr. Winfred Neely. He's at Moody Bible Institute, and he's the professor of biblical preaching. So he will be with us on the 3rd of October. So note that in your books, day timers, whatever you do. Dave Barker still uses a day timer. I, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's not here, so I could say that. So have a safe trip home. Let me pray for you before we go. Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich discussion that we've had, many things to think about in particular uh, on our hearts of how we can share the gospel with people who do not share our beliefs, people from other faiths and non-faiths. And Father, we pray that you'll help us uh, to assimilate these thoughts and to be able to practically bring out in our lives ways to reach the lost. And so, Father, we commit uh, ourselves to you. We commit the uh, travel home. Pray that you'll take us safely. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.